ourselves up after our coffee. The words of the teacher, a son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. So there we are. <laughs> now chapter 3. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid in the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Now let's read from chapter 4. And we'll begin at verse Eight. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless and miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie together, they will keep warm. But how can they keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Well, amen, and may God bless his word. Not the cheeriest of words, maybe, but may God bless his word to us. And uh, we'll come back and think about that in a, in a moment. Um, I don't know how much uh, a visiting speaker needs to share about themselves, but uh, basically I'm a, a minister in what we call a priority area uh, in Wester Hills, where there's just multiple deprivation of all sorts and all the attending lifestyle problems that tend to feed into that and come from that and so on. But uh, it can be tremendous fun just uh, ministering in a place like that as, that as well. Uh, we run a, a cafe and some of the, the people who haven't got their lives together more or less think of that as their, their church. They find that more easy for them than coming in on a Sunday morning or whatever. And uh, we were sitting around the, the cafe table having a talk, and we were actually talking about sin at the time. And uh, we were talking about the sin of envy. And uh, this man, who is a petty criminal, said, uh, who is now a Christian, uh, said, oh, I never had a, a problem with envy when I was growing up. If I saw anything that I wanted, I just took it. So <laughs> as simple as that. So you get a laugh sometimes. And uh, I, I really miss just not, um, when I wasn't well, just being off work just not being involved in all of that. I'm not a workaholic. I just I just actually like my job. I just like being a minister. I just like uh, being a pastor. But, you know, sometimes uh, work and ministry can get in the way of intimacy. 
I just, uh, it doesn't need to, it shouldn't have to, but sometimes it does, and I think that I can easily uh, fall into that temptation. I remember Jack Deere, uh, a wonderful Bible teacher from America, saying when we had him at a, a conference in Scotland, clan gathering, he said that ministry felt was, or ministry was one of the, the biggest impediments to, to intimacy with God. And, and I want you to hear this. God wants intimacy with you much more than he wants your usefulness. He, he, he wants intimacy and friendship with you much more than that he, he made you to do things for him. There's a, an American dad who um, asked his, his child, his 14-year-old boy, to, the, to mow the lawn for him. And the 14-year-old decided he didn't want to do that, so he ran off down the road. And his uh, father ran after him and caught him. And just before his father got the chance to say anything, the 14-year-old boy turned to his dad and said, you only had me so, you, so I could work for you. And the dad thought for a minute, 14 years old, I've asked him to mow the lawn twice. I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, God doesn't give us life, and he doesn't give us new life just so that we can work for him. He actually wants friendship. He wants intimacy. There's a, a, an interesting verse. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. I was just reading this last night, and it struck me. So I thought I would just mention it today, John chapter 14. And uh, we'll just read from verse, um, wait till I think. Let's read from verse 18 there, where Jesus is speaking before he goes to the cross, basically. And he says in verse 18 to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. <clears throat> Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. But this is a bit I noticed. I'd never... It's funny how you can read the Bible and never see things. Read the same passage many times and still see new things. Verse 22, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, but Lord, why? Not, not how. I think if I'd heard Jesus saying about, you'll see me, the world won't see me, but you'll see me, I, I would have wanted to ask, how? How's that going to be? But that wasn't the question. But Lord, why? Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the wider world? Lord, do you not want numbers? Do you not want the success of your mission? Why, why on earth are you just going to show yourself to, to us? Remember the temptation, you know, leap down from here and angels will rescue you. Then you'll have a following. Then the whole world will bow down to you. Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us? Are you not interested in the success of your mission? Why don't you show yourself to the wider world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. That's what he wants. His address, in a way, is the whole universe. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he wants a home. He wants intimacy. And so he's actually saying here to Judas, not Judas Iscariot, <clears throat> well, this is why, this is my main interest. My main interest is intimacy with those who love me. 
isn't it a case that most of our thoughts are about numbers and how much and more? We want to see more people saved. We want to see more people healed. Does Jesus want to see more people saved, more people healed? Of course he does. But first and foremost, he wants his people to hear this. I want intimacy with you. I want friendship with you. I want to make my home in you. I want you to love me and walk in love towards me. And I want to make your life my home and dwell in you in love. It's very interesting, isn't it? Revelation chapter 3, there was a verse there that brought me to faith. The verse that says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in. But that's not an evangelistic verse. It's a verse to a, a church that Jesus is standing outside. And do you hear what he's saying there almost in desperation? If anybody, would somebody, it doesn't matter who it is, would somebody just open the door so that I can come and be with my people, so that I can sit down at table and eat with them and drink with them, so that I can be friends with you. That's what he wants more than anything. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of the universe can have a lonely heart that actually we can heal with the offer of our friendship and our intimacy. And I found that uh, just being laid aside and not being able to work, I've said I'm going to speak from that place and things I, I feel I've discovered there, I, I just feel that in that place that, that, that God dealt with me in terms of what really matters, Kenny? What, what really matters? What matters to you more? Does your work matter more than me? Is your happiness dependent on getting well and being able to preach another sermon? Or am I enough? Just living in friendship and intimacy with me. Am I enough? And I found that though there was no earth-shattering experience, though there was no trumpet voice, I found that in that place he, he did begin to teach me things about what really mattered. And that was the first, just his presence, being satisfied with him. And on the basis of that, as I just spent time in his presence, I, I began to, to feel that he was, he was teaching me about what really, really uh, mattered. And I think the first thing that I, I began to see was what really matters about a relationship with God and what God can bring to a human life. Do you, do you know what? It must be equally available to all. If God loves the whole earth, if God's not willing that any should perish, if God wants the world to know that he so loved us that he gave us his son, then grasping what really matters, it can't be dependent on health, it can't be dependent on wealth, it can't be dependent on whether I've had a good past or a bad past, it can't be dependent on education. 
It can't be dependent on conferences. It must be equally available to all, whatever matters most. And I began to think about that, and I began to think about the renewal scene. And it seems to me, as I watch God TV, or as I attend some conferences, that yes, okay, God loves everybody. But the people that really matter are the movers and the shakers, the beautiful people, the educated. And you know what? I've got none of these in my parish. I remember saying at a conference then, not terribly long ago, um, you know, that when, when I went to some conferences to speak, that's the impression I got, that God was for the upwardly mobile. He was for those who had their life together. He was for those who attended basically middle-class churches from a middle-class background. I said, when I look at TV and the churches that are on there, I, I sometimes wonder, for example, and I actually said this, I said, where are all the sweating menopausal women in that church? <laughs> and I, I got an enormous cheer, so at least I know who I'm speaking to. <laughs> but friends, that's the reality. Most growing churches, not all, but most growing churches in the UK are for the beautiful people and the successful. If God is God of all the earth, then what he's got for us cannot be dependent on our looks, our brain, our financial power to attend a conference, or anything like that. I think that's why the, the work of Henry Nouwen started to mean so much to me. He was a lecturer in Harvard, and um, his uh, lectures were the best attended in the history of Harvard University. And he gave it all up to go and live in a community, in one of the large communities, for those with severe mental disability and all the physical problems that go with it. And folks said to him, you must be mad. Because in the university setting, you had access to the leaders of tomorrow. You had access to the clever people. You had access to the talented. You're wasting yourself going there. And yet what he learned in that setting has brought so much life to so many people who have read what he's learned of God in that setting. So that was the first thing that sort of struck me. How, how much is actually real in terms of what was on in the renewed church? How much of it is dependent on being good-looking, talented, and gifted? How much is actually real? You see, according to the Bible, 
the kingdom of God breaks through not in the place of plenty, but in the place of lack. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor. And we say poor in spirit. It's a poor translation. It is an economic word. And the best translation is, blessed are those who have the spirit of the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think I've found in Wester Hills that that's actually true. Because the poor can teach us things about God that we can never learn from a place of plenty. I was speaking to a Roman Catholic priest not terribly long ago, and he simply said this. He said, we have no food. He was from South America. He said, we have no food. Every day we are dependent on God, putting food on the table. See, we've sold out to a worldly idea that the future belongs to the talented and the gifted. Jesus made it clear right from the start. The kingdom meets us at a place of lack. So that's the first thing that I, I learned. I wonder if there's some people here and you feel, well, I, I've not got whatever it takes to be one of the leading people in my church. They all seem to have it so much together. They've all got such nice accents when they speak. They all look so beautiful. They can't have a past like mine. And you can very quickly think that being of importance in a church or a kingdom depends on what you have. Whereas Jesus says, the kingdom breaks through where you have not and where you have nothing. To some of us need to realize that it's actually in the place of, of lack. It's in this very feeling that I've got nothing to give. That's actually where the kingdom breaks through. Do you remember how Jesus made the promise about the Holy Spirit? He talked about the Father, just as we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children. If our child asks for a, a, an egg, we don't give them a, a, a snake. Uh, if they ask for a, a fish, we don't give them a scorpion. And then he says, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? But he tells that promise, makes that promise on the back of a story. And the story is this, that somebody comes to your house at midnight and knocks at your door, and they're wearied from a journey, and you bring them in and you sit them down at your table, and you, you realize you open the cupboards, you've got nothing to give them, to refresh them with. So what do you do? You go along the road to your friend and you knock on his door at midnight and you say, friend, you know, a friend of mine has come on a long journey and I've got nothing to give them. 
and eventually that other friend will open the door and give you whatever you need. Is it for yourself? No. So you can take it back and bless that person who's waiting at your table. So it's a story of emptiness. It's a story of here's somebody and they want to do something for somebody, but actually their cupboards are bare. They've got nothing to give. And in that emptiness, they go to someone whose cupboards are always full. And on the basis of that, Jesus makes the promise of the Father giving the Holy Spirit. Have you discounted yourself from usefulness? Because you don't seem to fit into the mold of those who are entrusted to do things. Will you start believing that it's in the place where you feel weakest and emptiest that the kingdom of God can really break through? And if we've got any responsibility for leading a church, let's not give the impression that the people who matter are simply the talented and the gifted and the beautiful. Let's make sure that those who know they've got nothing can also stand at the front and give to us something of the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing I learned, that you know, there's something gone a bit out of kilter in the Renewal Church and um, that God is not dependent on our talents and giftedness and so on. Okay, the second thing that I learned. Um, my wife isn't here, but if she was here, she would tell you. And um, I have to confess this with a matter of shame. Maybe you think that every minister likes all of the Bible. Well, I read all of the Bible. I don't necessarily like all of the Bible. And uh, a part of the Bible that I don't really like, and this usually shocks people, is I just can't stand the book of Proverbs. I just cannot stand it. It just infuriates me, all these wee statements, and everybody tries to put me right and says, oh, there is such wisdom there. I say, no doubt there is, but I still can't stand it. I just cannot stand the way it's written. I make myself read it and I benefit from it, but I can't stand it. A close second is the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> I, I just can't stand the book of Ecclesiastes. I mean, if you're wanting to cheer yourself up, it's not really the book to read, is it? If you've got your Bibles, let's just look at Ecclesiastes together. And what about these opening remarks? The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What about if you're using the NIV, let's just look at some of the headings that come. Wisdom is meaningless. Just before chapter 2 there, pleasures are meaningless. What about going on halfway through chapter 2? Wisdom and folly are meaningless. Toil is meaningless. It's meaningless, 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 meaningless. Chapter 4, oppression, toil, friendlessness. Towards the end of chapter 4, advancement is meaningless. Into chapter 5, riches are meaningless. 
It's not exactly the most cheerful of books. And so I've never really liked Ecclesiastes, but the amazing thing is, Morag again would tell you that um, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are her favorite books. <laughs> and um, she claims that everything that she has seen, I eventually come to see. <laughs> Kicking and screaming usually, and admit that she was right. And I've found in my illness that Ecclesiastes is quite a good book. And uh, let me tell you a couple of reasons, a couple of things from Ecclesiastes that God was trying to tell me, Kenny, uh, these things really matter and this is where there needs to be adjustment in your life that he did make uh, during that time of illness. Now, I don't mean by that, and I just want to put in a wee caveat here, remind me Ecclesiastes in a moment in case I forget all about it. Let me, let me put in a wee caveat. I, in Scotland, we've got this overemphasis on, um, on God teaching you things through hard experiences. Now, now actually, he can teach us things through hard experiences. The, the Bible says it was, it was good for me. It was good for me to, to, to be oppressed. It was good for me to bear a burden. It taught me something. But um, sometimes if we overstress a truth, it becomes a lie. I, I love what um, Bill Johnson said in, in Reading, California. He said, um, God does not send us cancer to teach us a lesson. He sent Jesus to teach cancer a lesson. Remember that God is good all the time. And he... He doesn't send bad things, even if he can use bad things that we go through. So I don't want to overemphasize that teaching, otherwise it can bring us to a place where we've a distorted view of God in our minds. I first started being a minister in the islands of Orkney, and there was a lady there, it was only a, a, an island of about 380 people, and there was a lady there that I visited regularly, she was in her 90s. And when she was eight, I think it was eight years old, her father went missing at sea. Do you know what some helpful Christian said to her as she was standing, seeing every boat coming in except her father? This helpful Christian quoted to an eight-year-old Hebrews chapter 12. God chastises every child that he receives. Every visit I made, she quoted that. So for an eight-year-old, the damage had been done. This truth that God can use hard experiences had been pushed to being a lie, where the face of God had been utterly distorted. I think that often in the Christian church we so emphasize this, that God sends hard things in order to teach us hard lessons, <coughs> that we've hidden the face of a good father who loves to do good things. So I put that in as a caveat, because I did learn things, and I'm learning things in these um, harder times for me in terms of health and so on, and opportunities and uh, limitations, but I just want to put that wee caveat in there. God is not a harsh God. He's not a harsh God. His main aim is not to teach us hard lessons through hard experiences. 
but to be good to us and show us his love. Having said that, back to Ecclesiastes, one or two things that I, I learned in terms of what really matters. Uh, number one, live for the moment. Live for the present. Live in the present. <laughs> Experiencing the goodness of God in this very moment and present time and present day. You know, it's an interesting book, Ecclesiastes, and uh, sometimes we quote that verse that we um, ended with there in chapter, sorry, that we, the last verse we read in chapter 3, anyway, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. And we focus on that last part of the verse only. He has set eternity in the human heart, as though deep down in the human heart we all know there's a God and believe there's a God somewhere, etc., etc. But actually this verse is here as a torment. It's expressing a human torment. The first part of the human torment, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Nothing lasts. That's the point of that verse. Nothing lasts. It may be beautiful for a time, but it doesn't actually last. And this is sometimes the cause of the torment, because actually the human heart longs for something to last. He has also set eternity in the human heart. There's the conflict. We want these beautiful times to last. But actually, they come and they go. And you can write over every human experience, it came to pass. That's actually the meaning of that beautiful passage that we read in chapter 3. It's not so beautiful. It's beautiful poetry, but it's actually describing this, this uncomfortable truth that nothing lasts forever. There is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the, under the heavens. There's a time to be born. That's a good time. But there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, but there's a time to uproot as well, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh. In other words, seasons come and seasons go, and experiences come and experiences go. And that can either cause a torment, because eternities in our heart will want something to last, and it doesn't. Or it can drive us to rethink things. And you know the positive message of what seems like a meaningless message in Ecclesiastes? The very positive message is the very thing that we're told as Christians we're not to do. We're to live for the moment. We're to live this moment. And the teaching about having eternity set in our hearts is not meant to be don't live for the moment live for eternity. The teaching of having eternity set in our hearts is this is distressing because we want certain things to go on forever. They don't. So how do you deal with that? You live each passing moment as a gift from God. You don't live your life in the past 
but nor do you try and futurize the present, wishing it would go on forever or not go on forever. You don't live in the past and you don't futurize your life. You live for the moment. Let me link this with healing. So many people's need for healing arises because they cannot live the present moment because they're either looking back to the past or they're anticipating the future. And because of that, they can't find freedom and love and life in the present moment. I wonder if some of us need prayer there today. I actually just need help to live the way we're told to live in the Bible. Not worrying about what will last, not worrying about what will come, but accepting that every day, every moment has its season. And I need the help of God to live this season and to live it well. Not hankering after a past season, not longing for a future season or dreading a future season, but living today and living it in the goodness and with the help of God. Jesus' version of that is very, very simple. It sounds a wee bit like Ecclesiastes in tone. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day is enough trouble. So get on living that in the grace and love of your Heavenly Father. You know, I wonder if some of us need to, in order to be able to live the present, that, that doesn't mean we don't need to look at the past. Sometimes we do need to look at the past. I was mentioning to Anne last night when we were having supper, just uh, the, the book I've been reading by Richard Wurmbrandt. It's a, a series of sermons that he preached to himself and to the angels when he was in solitary confinement. And they're amazing. Some of them are in the edge of madness because if you're in confinement, for all, solitary confinement for 80% of 14 years, you're going to be in the verge of madness. But also some of them plumb depths that you do only discover in hard times. And one of the things he said that I'd never really seen before was um, when Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee, remember how it was really good wine. Well, really good wine has a past. In, in other words, he created something with a history. Do you know that God can give you a new history that you didn't have before? You see, according to my Bible, he, when he makes us new creatures, just as when he changed water into wine, he, he gives us a new history. He tells me I was loved since before the world was made, that I was chosen before the world was made that I was accepted in the Beloved before the world was made. 
And you know what? I can go with that new history into some of my old history. And if I can begin to change the consequences, I can begin to change the effects. I can begin to change the reactions. I can begin to change the choices I made. And I wouldn't tell you anything I'd not tried myself. I thought about this, that the water into wine with a history, God giving us a new history and somehow that we can relive history as we've known it with that new identity. And I thought about something that happened to me at the age of 13, something that became a living, walking, sleeping nightmare up until I was in my 30s, because I never found an answer to it. And I started to think of the level of fear and anxiety that entered my life at the age of 13, and I took my new history into that just as I was dropping off to sleep last night. I took it to that frightened, anxious 13-year-old and offered him a new history based on his belovedness, based on his chosenness, based on the fact that he'd been loved and kept and would never be abandoned by God from eternity to eternity. And I began to see as I did that, you know what? That 13-year-old that is able to make different choices. To, to react in trust rather than fear. To react in hope rather than I, I hope nobody ever discovers this. God can give you a new history. And if you take that new history into life as you've experienced it, then some of these hurts that hold us in the past and stop us living fully in the present can begin to go. Why not begin to rewrite your history if there's a need to? Some lives start really badly. I think I told you before, you know this story, I, I wear this bracelet that was given to me by a lady in the congregation who started to be abused by her father at the age of four and was sodomized and raped by her father regularly from the age of 11. And I wear that bracelet to remind myself of who might be out there when I'm preaching. I, I'm not here to be a good preacher. I'm here simply to bring the help and love of God to people. People with real needs, who've come through real situations. And you know, some of what I hear, this is part of the honest process that's been going on, some of what I hear in, in renewal circles, it doesn't hold water for me anymore after being ill. It just doesn't work. God's into real help for real people. Not the sort of mental faith gymnastics that we need to do according to some renewal preachers. But this is a real need. And it needs to be really met. And don't try and make out it's not been, it is being met when it's patently not being met.
Remember the story of the emperor with no clothes. There was nothing there. And everybody was just pretending there was. Don't pretend to be healed if you're not. Don't pretend your past is dealt with if it's not. But get your new history from God and begin to take it into the hurts and the pains and so on that you've known. And then you know what? You'll be able to live in the moment. You'll be able to do what Jesus tells us to do, just to go one day at a time, not tyrannized by the past, not dreading the future, but actually have a new history that sets me at peace so I can focus on this moment and enjoy this passing season, whatever tomorrow may bring. Enjoy this passing season in the goodness of God. So that's the first thing I learned from this book that I hate. It's not such a bad book, and there really is wisdom to learn there. Let me tell you the second thing that I, I learned. We'll move into chapter uh, 4 uh, now. And uh, it's very, very simple, actually. It's just the importance of, the importance of friendship. See, commonplace things have become incredibly important to me over the last year. Things that I didn't value properly. Let's just uh, read from verse 9 of chapter 4. Two are better than one. By the way, this isn't, again, singleness and so on. It's just about friendship. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, just as I, I reinterpreted for you, I think truthfully what's meant by God setting eternity in our hearts and sort of despiritualizing that a bit. We need to despiritualize what's said here about a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I was brought up to believe that that was something to do with my fellowship with Christ that um, he was the third friend, if you like. He was the friend that needed to come into all our relationships. doesn't say that. It's actually saying, you know what, if you've got one really good friend, you're blessed. If you've got two really, really good friends, you're blessed beyond measure. I think I've come to realize in the value, uh, over being ill, I remember just the value of friendship. I remember when I, when I first came to after my biopsy and so on, just looking and my, my best friend was there. And I wasn't able to say anything to him, well, not anything coherent. I was quite high on morphine at that point, but so I wasn't able to say anything coherent. 
and I was coming in and out of consciousness and or, or asleep then away. He wasn't able to say very much to me. But it meant the world to open my eyes and to see him. Do you know what Henry Nouwen said about friendship? This is something I, I really, really like. He said this, friendship is being with the other in joy or in sorrow, even when we cannot increase the joy or decrease the sorrow. I think that's profound. Friendship is about being with one another in joy or in sorrow, even when we cannot increase the joy or decrease the sorrow. I wonder if you believe that you're a worthwhile friend for other people to know? Or do you think, I've not got anything to offer? I wonder if you're keeping yourself uh, a bit isolated. Do you remember me telling you the story of the um, deliverance of that uh, girl that came to see me in Thurso? That, that was only my second experience of deliverance. The first one had happened not terribly long before that when I was still a minister in, in uh, Orkney and Stronsey. And I was praying for this lady, just a quiet, very demure Christian lady. And all of a sudden, her, her neck just swiveled away from me. And uh, she looked back through slit eyes. And a voice, not her own voice, said, Ha ha, you didn't know it was me, did you? And I thought, well, it's right, I didn't know. I, I, nor did I know what to do, I just didn't have a clue. And I thought to myself, well, I guess I just, I mean, nobody had taught me about these things, so I, I thought, I guess I just say in the name of Jesus, go. But I have to tell you, I was terrified. I was really frightened. And um, I wasn't full of faith and fit for the moment. And I was gasping for every breath that was in <laughs> the name of Jesus and eventually I got it out you know and told this thing to go it wasn't help because the lady herself said it's not going it's not going and I thought no it, it has to go because Jesus is Lord and then somehow a strength and a, an authority came and I knew I had this thing by the scruff of the neck and I said no it's okay it, it will go it started singing a song in a demonic tongue on Satan to send resources. And then this curious phrase came to mind that I was to say to the lady, you're the gift of God to the life of the world. In other words, you matter that you are special, that you are unique, that you have something to contribute to the lives of other people in this world that only you can offer and only you can give. And when I said that, whatever it was within her just went ballistic. No, she's not. No, she's not. She is not the gift of God to the life of the world. And I really didn't know what to do other than, I think this is truth versus lies here, so I'll just keep telling the truth. And eventually the lady just collapsed across the table, speaking in tongues. And the thing left. 
Now I would like to say after that I lost all fear. I didn't. I got back home and was frightened to go upstairs to my bed alone. I have to have Morag to take me up the stairs and leave the light on. But you know, Satan really wants to contest that we've got anything worthwhile to offer to one another. Do you realize that God's put you here on earth as well as to be a friend of him? He's, he's put you here on earth because you can be a good friend to other people. And maybe you hang back because you think, well, I don't know what to do for them. Remember what Henry Nouwen said. A good friend can't necessarily decrease somebody's sorrow or increase their joy. They're just there. What friendship do you think meant most to Jesus? Well, there's two, I think, that stand out in the Bible. One is the, the friendship with John, you know, who was the, the beloved. But somehow, I, I think, when we read that phrase, it's, it's more an expression, I feel, of John's amazement that he was beloved by Jesus. Remember, he'd been the one that had leaned his head on Jesus' breast and asked, who is it that's going to betray you? And Jesus said, the person to whom I give this sop, John saw him giving it to Judas, but he did nothing. Do you remember when Jesus speaks to Peter about his future on the beach after the resurrection? They turn and they see John, and, and they actually say, what about him? In other words, he, he's the one that could have stopped this and didn't. And Jesus says to him, what, what's that to you? In other words, know your own story. Just, just leave that to me. So sometimes I think that phrase, the beloved, is more John in sheer amazement saying, this is who I am, this is what I could have done, this is what I didn't do, but I'm the beloved of Jesus Christ. But I actually think that the friendship that meant most to him, most to Jesus, was his friendship with Mary, the, the sister of Martha. Do you remember how when Martha was serving and, and getting busy, you know, getting all worked up, Jesus was just, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet just listening to him, just being there. Do you remember what Mary did for Jesus? She, when everybody else was having a party, she got up and she anointed him. She knew that the cross was coming. She couldn't do anything to stop the cross. But she anointed Jesus beforehand for his burial to let him understand that she knew what he was going through, though she couldn't do a thing to alter it. And Jesus said, she's done a beautiful thing for me. And wherever the gospel is preached throughout all the world, this thing will be told in memory of her. Do you see the point? Mary couldn't stop the cross. 
She couldn't do anything to take away from what Jesus was going to have to suffer. But she could be there for him, to let him know that she cared, and to let him know that she understood. And sometimes, you know, I think in Jesus we see everything modeled. Do you remember when he was arrested that Simon eventually came to and lashed out and cut off one of the guard's ears? Well, it was just as easy for him to be arrested by a guard with no ear, although Jesus healed him. And Jesus said, just put your sword away. He hadn't wanted that. What did he want? He just wanted them to be there with him, to watch with him, to pray with him. But oh, Simon Peter was always ready to do something when he could do something. But he didn't seem to get it. It's not really the sort of friendship I want with you, Peter. I just want your time, your company, your presence. Not for you to lash out with a sword. You know, friendship's a wonderful thing. Friendship with Jesus is a wonderful thing. My father died a year past in April, and um, I don't know if I said this to you last year, but he was a, well, he was a, he was a Presbyterian like myself, tinkered with by the Holy Spirit. And uh, I remember when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, it was a glorious experience for him. And uh, he always sang out of tune, and ever after his baptism, he sang out of tune in tongues, which was a very... <laughs> unpleasant experience for everybody concerned. It certainly didn't help anybody else to worship God, but he was having a, a whale of a time. He, he ended up in hospital. He was a bit off his chump, I have to say, by the time he, the end of his life was coming near. Do you know nothing, nothing altered in his spirit? That was the interesting thing. And the nurses in the hospital would be treated to the most discordant singing in tongues I'm sure they'd ever heard. But they were also blessed by his interpretation. They would sing out of tune in tongues, and then as they were going about their business, he'd be singing about Jesus' his friend who was coming for him soon. And Jesus' his best friend who had never left him and never forsaken him and never would. And in between that, because he was a baker by profession, he'd be complaining about the quality of his apple crumble and that type of thing. But when I think of my dad, that's what he had with Jesus. Just a friendship. As simple as that. And the amazing thing, according to Ecclesiastes, in all this talk of meaninglessness, there's these one or two bright points. First bright point, live for the moment. Second bright point, friendship. So a couple of things there. Do you realize Jesus just wants you to be a friend? Do you realize he regards you as a friend? And it's not because of what you can do. It's not because of your gifts. It's not because of what you can contribute to the kingdom. That's not the basis of his friendship. 
the basis of his friendship remains even when you can't do a thing to apparently advance his kingdom in a situation. It's just he wants your friendship because he loves you. And the second thing, what about it, with regard to friendship, is what about your own friendships? Have some of us been so hurt in friendships that we've closed the door? In previous conferences here at the the well, I, I've spoken. And I think the first time I came about a a couple of folk in Thurso who I thought were, you know, just the best friends anybody could ever have, and Morag and I were so blessed to have them as our friends, but they're not part of our lives anymore. And you know, when we moved from Thurso, I found that whole experience so hurtful that I thought, well, I've got Morag and the kids, I, I think I'll just do without friendship. That was just so hurtful. You know what C.S. Lewis says? He says, you know, if, if you want to save your heart from hurt, you can, you can close it up. You can lock it up in a casket. And he said it will be kept safe from hurt. But in the process it will become hard. And it will become brittle. Does that strike a chord for some of us here? We've been hurt in human relationships and friendships, and you know what? I don't know if I want to try again. Does God want some of us to try again? Do you know my, my dream for this lady that gave me this bracelet? is despite all the way that she's been abused physically and sexually and emotionally. I'll tell you my dream, and I've never spelled it out for her, that she will find a friend. And I'm also praying it will be a friend of the opposite sex, with whom she'll be able to have a physical, emotional, relational friendship. That's asking for a real miracle. That she'll unlock her heart, which she has had to defend. And she'll begin to take the risk of relationship. Is God asking you to try again? Does he want to come and take away your fear of friendship? Does he want to come and take away your fear of relating, either what other people may do to you, or this feeling, I don't know if I've got the capability of being a friend to other people? Do you need to see that you're the gift of God? To the life of the world. Do you need to see that you're the gift of God 
to the life of other people. So a couple of things to think about from the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Living for the moment, what stops you doing that? Is it fear of the past, hurt from the past, or fear of the future that, that just won't let you live this moment? Do you need help there just to live the moment? And what about the two are better than one and a threefold cord is, is not easily broken? Do you need help to open your heart in relationship, in friendship? Do you need a greater confidence in yourself of the right sort? That God has put me here as his gift to other people. Why don't we just gently close our eyes in the presence of God and I'll be quiet for a moment and just think, out of that, what does God want me to hear? So let's just think for a moment. just as we bow in God's presence and let me read something. I was in Costas not terribly long ago and I just wrote down this. Right now I'm looking at a table of eight or so young people in their twenties. I believe it because of what they're talking about and the cleanness and openness of their faces that they are believers. They sit down for coffee, so animated, so many words, so much laughter, so much cleverness and quickness of wit. But now, 15 minutes after the initial rush of caffeine and enjoyment of being together, one sits painting her nails. All the others are almost completely silent, looking around desperately hoping someone will speak. Someone will have something to say to spark things off again. But no one speaks more than five or six words. They've lost interest in one another. And they're more interested in complete strangers coming through the cafe doors whose dress and form are carefully scanned. The excitement only returns when they get up to leave one another. In one I see and sense a searching, in others a lostness despite belief. I feel sad because ultimately they're not offering to one another a finished fragrance. So much that is lovely vibrant, but so much that is disappointed. You know, true relationship and friendship is almost becoming a lost art in this Facebook generation. And it's one of the treasures of life. 
And sadly, we've um, increased the tragedy of that by valuing people more for their giftedness and their ministry that they can offer in the church, rather than just valuing them themselves. What are, what's really eternal? I, I started out by asking, what really matters? And just as we bow in the presence of God, let me just say what I feel for me. I, I at one time thought that maybe my life was ending. And you know, it struck me with an awful clarity. If I go to heaven, I'll not be preaching there. What use will there be for my ministry or my gifts when everybody's seen God face to face? I won't be needed. And then there came such a sense of delight. I thought, maybe at last I can be what I always wanted to be. Maybe I can be a bus driver. And maybe I can zoom around the galaxy like Fireball XL5. And I can take people to outlying provinces of God to show them his wonders. And the thought really excited me. For some of us, we think that we are our gifts or our ministries. It's going to be awful difficult getting used to heaven where these gifts and ministries aren't needed anymore. Nobody's going to need healed. Nobody's going to need a prophetic word. Nobody's going to need a Bible study. But you know, according to Jesus, one thing that we do take to heaven is friendships. Do you remember that curious passage about the, the, the sort of twisted, devious steward and the friends that he managed to buy for himself? And Jesus said then, there would be friends waiting to receive us into our eternal dwellings. So we keep on being told about things we can't take with us to heaven, but according to Jesus, friends we've made here, these friendships will endure. And yet how many of us have glorified what is not eternal, namely our gifts and our ministries, and devalued what is eternal, friendship. Relating person to person. And so just as we bow in God's presence, and let's keep our eyes shut, I'm just going to ask again the prayer ministry team and the, the worship band just as, to come as I, I'll just explain what I think um, maybe some of us need help with and need to receive prayer for. What about beginning with that thought, you're the gift of God to the life of other people. Have some of you just, I've got no confidence when I'm with other people. I. I just wish the ground would open up and swallow me. I feel ill at ease, and I suspect other people feel ill at ease with me. 
you need help from God really to believe that you're the gift of God to the life of other people. To have a right sort of confidence that you matter and just by being you, you have something to offer into human relationships and friendships and situations. Do you need to stop hiding yourself away because you feel you've not got what it takes to be considered worth friendship? You're not exciting enough, clever enough, talented enough, rich enough. Your house isn't good enough. That's true for somebody here. I can't ask people back to my house. L look at it. There's some reason that you've discounted yourself as a friend. And then are there some of us who, yet yeah, we have locked our hearts away. And we need the help of God because the heart is going to harden and become brittle. And we, we need the help of God after the damage we've known from friends to try again. You need to be secure in the friendship of Jesus, just like my dad was to his very last breath. That he has never forsaken you and he will never forsake you. And then going on to the, the former point, what about living in the moment? Do you need to become aware of your new history? as one who's always been loved and watched over, chosen, accepted, delighted in. Do you need to be free from the tyranny of the past so that you can live the moment? Do you need to be released from fear of what may or may not come in order to live the moment? So just 30 seconds more silence to think. Where, Lord, are you speaking to me? There's just two things I feel God is reinforcing. Somebody for whom that is a real word, I can't bring them back to my house. Look at the state of it. And somebody else who's thinking, but I can't risk friendship in case they discover my background. That skeleton in the cupboard. I could never ask anyone round to my house, even when I was young, because I didn't want people to know or to see. And I still feel the shame of that. Lord, wherever you've spoken to us, may the, the evil one not come and snatch away kingdom seed. May it bring the life of your kingdom to us. May it flourish, 
become fruitful. Move upon our hearts now by your Holy Spirit. Move in our midst. Bless these dear people who are here to pray. Give them words, insights, as is needful. One of the prayer ministry team had a word about um, just opening up our hearts again. And that was a sort of confirmation of what I've just been speaking about. So maybe that is something that God needs to do for us because broken friendships can be incredibly painful and make us clam up. And we need the help of God to help us open up again. So Lord, move by your spirit, we pray. Honour your word by making it fruitful in our lives. So let's just stand in the presence of God and worship as we close. And if there's uh, people want prayer, then please, you know, your, your lunch can wait. Anything can wait. Just go and get prayer. Don't let the opportunity pass.